If you would, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, as we continue to see the interactions of Jesus Christ with the religious leaders, as conflict continues to mount, tensions grow. All of this, of course, is leading to the moment of betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus Christ upon the cross. But here we're in the midst of of the mounting and rising tensions. It has become very, very clear that Jesus does not particularly care for the way that the religious leaders have been conducting themselves in the land of Israel, and the leaders, they're not particularly fond of Jesus Christ either. So as tensions mount, as they grow, we find another interaction, another conflict where the, the religious leaders are seeking to entrap Jesus Christ. I don't know if you guys have ever played games where you encounter someone who gets labeled as the rules lawyer. Although the rules lawyer, this is, this is different from someone who is just a stickler about the rules. All right, someone who's a stickler about the rules, they're, they're looking at the letter of the law, what does the rule book say, and just trying to keep people on track with that. That's not the rules lawyer. The rules lawyer is the individual who says, you know what, I know that's what the rules say, but technically there's these loopholes around this, and you can kind of maneuver, you can, you can make the game kind of flow in your favor by exploiting every possible loophole within the game. We have a game at home that actually encourages this behavior. The rules, some of the rules are a little bit uh, nebulous. They're a little bit ambiguous. It allows you to navigate around and to, to get these games, to get rules, to make the moves according to your advantage. In fact, the game is so designed in that way that when there are some mechanics of the game that if you violate those mechanics, the game just completely breaks down altogether. The rules are extra specific to limit and eliminate that kind of rules lawyering around things. Oftentimes, the rules lawyer uh, has the reputation of not being the most fun to play with because it's like, ah, oh, we're, tr- we're trying, to play, trying to play a game, we're trying to have fun, and here you are just bending all the rules to the point of their breaking point for the sake of your own self-advancements. And so it's not that much fun. And in the end, hey, you know what? They may accomplish their purpose. They may win the game, maybe at the expense of some strained relationships, but hey, you know what? They accomplished their purpose. They won the game, right? And I have to confess I'm talking about the rules lawyer. I've been known to be a little bit of a rules lawyer myself, right? I have to check that within myself as we try to get through different games and things. Because if they don't curb the rules lawyering tendencies, the end result is people are less likely to want to play, invite them in, because they know it's just going to create these different things going on. Well, we, we can all tend to be pragmatic thinkers when we think about the whole debate between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law as, as we think about the different rules that we all engage in and we face in in life. There's the letter of the law. We think in particular the laws of the land. This is what the law specifically says. If you're you know, before a judge, they might judge according to the very letter of the law, but then there's the spirit of the law. It's like, well, you know, maybe the letter of the law was written this way, but it's really intended to curb this behavior. It's really intended to produce this effect. So even though you can get around the law by the letter of the law, the spirit of the law dictates such. And those debates go back and forth. And oftentimes we tend to be selective in our lives about when we're going to choose to go by the letter versus the spirit of law, whatever is most advantageous for us in the moments. Well, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were experts, rule lawyers. 
They knew what the law said, and they knew every which way around it. They even had heaped extra rules and extra laws upon the people, but even so had created these rule lawyer ways to get around those rules that they had created. So, lots of different examples that could be said about that. But in our text today, they're going to attempt to trap Jesus Christ on a question about the law. And a question about God's law, about a question about what does God say is permissible and is right for them to observe. This trap is eventually going to fail, but the truth that Jesus is going to teach us, it should all have us asking, are there ways in which I am rules lawyering my way around what God would expect of us? Is there something that I am doing that is out of step with my obligations to my Lord? Let's read our text. This is Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's break this down just section by section for a moment before we consider the implications of, of the teaching that is here. First, you have the question that is raised, and, and notice who are the characters at play here. Notice in verse 13 it says, they sent to him. Now, who's the they at play there? Well, this very likely would have been the Sanhedrin. If we go back to the, the first interaction when they are challenging his authority, who gave you the authority to do these things? That takes us back into chapter 11 where they ask him this question, and it's the chief priests, it's the scribes, it's the elders as they came to him. These make up the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jewish people. And so now they sent a, a subsection of their group to them, and it's made up of these two subgroups. We have the Pharisees and we have the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees and the Herodians, these are not two groups of individuals that get along very well at all. The Herodians, as is implied by their name, they are pro-Herodian dynasty. You think of King Herod and him sitting on the throne as a, as a person who has delegated that authority by the Roman government. The Herodians they are Jewish individuals. They are pro-Herod. They're the pro-Herodian dynasty because they've made compromises with Herod. And they say, well, you know, if you give us this, we'll do this for you. We'll, we'll direct people to be listening to your instruction, to be obedient and to be submissive to you if you will give us these other things instead. And so they made compromises with the Herodian government. And so they are pro-Herodian. They are pro-Roman and they've made those compromises in order to hold on to their own political power. Well, that does not sit too well with the Pharisees. 
the Pharisees, they are anti-Roman rule. They, they want the Romans expulsed from the land. They, they do not want them in the land. They do not want to be under Roman rule at all. They want to be their own sovereign nation. They want to have the control in the land. They were the ones that had the most religious influence over the people, but they wanted the political influence as well. And so now you have these two groups of, together that are usually enemies, and yet here they are coming together, united against Jesus Christ. As the old saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so here they have a trap for Jesus, and they, they use that word. It, that's, that's Mark's comments there. They, they sent him to him for a purpose. What is that purpose? To trap him in his talk. Interesting the way that word trap is used in other places throughout uh, Greek literature. There's, it it re- literally speaks of a, of a trap for like an animal. You're trying to trap an animal. You're, there's lure that's there. There's bait that's there. It's, it's used in fishing context where you put a lure on a, on a line. You throw it out. It's used in, in animal trapping context. You think of like those, those bear traps that, that snap up. There's a lure in the middle there, and it, it catches the prey. Well, that's the kind of concept there. There's, there's you lure the creatures in and then you trap them with the trap. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a mouse in my house right now that we've been trying to trap. We have been unsuccessful trying to get this thing trapped. And we've set out different kinds of traps. There's snap traps. There's glue traps. We put different baits on the traps. There's peanut butter. You can buy this, this lure from the store that's supposed to be even better than peanut butter. You can put it on. So far, we've been unsuccessful. There's one kind that we haven't put out just yet that we need to put out and try that out. But every once in a while we see this mouse or we see evidence of the mouse and we want to get rid of that thing. Well, we have these different traps, right? There's a lure trying to bait it, to try to get it in, and then some means of, of getting it so that we can have our way with that mouse to eliminate it from the premises. Well, more or less, that's the idea of what the Pharisees and the Herodians are doing here. They've got a trap that they're trying to set for Jesus, and they're going to try to lure him in. What's the lure? Well, they flatter him. Teacher, we know that you are true. You do not care about anyone's opinion. And they go on, and they have all this praise to heap upon Jesus Christ. It's ironic, actually, that everything that they say about Jesus is actually true. <laughs> uh, they don't believe it. Right? These Pharisees, the Herodians, they don't believe a word of what they're saying to Jesus Christ. They're trying to trap him so that they can get rid of him. But ironically, everything that they say about Jesus is true. Often, when there are traps set, the flattery is often employed because it gets you feeling good about yourself, and so it, it gets you to take the defensive edge off of yourself, and so you're just... You're just walk right in the trap. Oh, you've just told me all these nice things about myself. And so now you're, you feel more free to say something that perhaps you should not say. And so you're inclined to answer in ways that we should not answer. Well, how do they flatter Jesus? You know, he say, oh, you are true. Or some translations say, you are truthful. We know that you don't speak lies. Everything that you say, it just, you, you speak things that are accurate. It says, you don't care about anyone's opinion. Or another translation says, you don't defer to anyone. The idea is there that you're not someone who has to, you know what, okay, you've asked me a question. Let me, let me talk with my friends over here and, and get counsel about this. No, you don't do that. You just are able to speak. Or, or there, perhaps it's more of the idea of, 
you're not considering whether what other people think about you. You're not worried about what opinions are. You just speak what is true, what, what, what is just right. You just give it straight without regard to the opinions of others. Next, they say that you don't care about anyone's opinion. Some translations say you're not partial to any. And this is a, this is a Greek idiom. And the, literally, if we're to translate it literally in a wooden way, it says you do not look into the face. And it's an idiom that means that you're not swayed by appearances or you don't show favoritism in your judgments. As, as you render opinions, as you speak forth statements, you don't take things into consideration that would show favoritism to one group or another depending on what your audience is, depending on what is most expedient for the moment. They say, no, 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 that's not who you are. One commentator noted that in, in one sense you could almost take that idiom like very, very literally yeah, he doesn't look into the face, he looks into the heart, right? And then finally they say, oh, we know that you teach the way of God in truth, or you truly teach the way of God. What, what you have to say, Jesus, we know that what you have to say is not just mere human opinion, but it's actually the way of God. Now, that last part is a very crucial point for their question because what they are saying is, Jesus, we know that you speak for the Lord. They're affirming Him as a prophet, in a sense, before God. And, of course, they are duplicitous in this. They are not truthful. This is, this is flattery. This is empty words from their mouths. And yet, ironically, everything that they say is true. While this flattery is part of the trap and part of the setup, they're going to attempt to put Jesus in such a corner that, that however He answers the question, however he, he answers what they're about to put before Him, it's not going to be just a reflection of His own human opinion, but rather it's supposed to be a statement from God on high. So whatever you say, Jesus, that's God's opinion. Thus, from the vantage point of the Pharisees and the Herodians, however he answers this question, he's going to be in trouble with someone. We've got him here. We've, we've got the perfect either-or scenario. He has to pick one or the other. Well, what is the question? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Is it lawful? Is it, is it permissible? Is God okay with us paying these taxes to Caesar? And then they follow that up with that deliberative, uh, we don't know what to do, Jesus. Should we do it or should we not? Uh, you got to help us out with this conundrum. They ask as though they have such a quandary that they just do not know what to do with this dilemma. Pharisees are going to lean one direction. The Herodians are going to lean another. Lord, you, you just got to settle this dispute for us. What should we do? Well, some translations actually have in there, it would say, is it lawful to pay the poll tax or the head tax? This is a tax that would have been their annual census tax. It was a tribute tax. This is an annual tax on every household. And in a moment, Jesus is going to ask for that denarius, Right? Well, the denarius is that one day's wage, and that was the amount of the tax. Every year they had to pay one day's wage to the government. 
And when this tax was first imposed, it actually sparked rebellion. It sparked a revolt because the Jewish people were so incensed that this foreign government would come in and levy these taxes upon the people that there was an uprising, that they tried to rebel against it so they would not have to pay those taxes. That revolt was eventually put down. The Romans maintained control, but it was still a very unpopular tax among the Jewish people. They did not like to pay it because it signified that they were not their own free people. Them having to pay those taxes to the Roman government signified that they and their land belonged to Rome, which is an idea that they absolutely hated and even considered blasphemous. And so with that context of what that tax was, I'm sure you can already begin to see the danger of this question as, as it is asked, as it is posed to Jesus. On the one hand, the common people, they hate paying that tax, right? They, they hate it. If Jesus says, nope, you should pay the tax, well, He's going to lose popularity with the crowds. And it was that popularity, that's really the only thing that was keeping the religious leaders from acting against Jesus, from arresting Him in the first place. All right, we saw that in the, in the previous text that we saw last week. It says they were seeking to arrest Him. This is chapter 12, verse 12. But they feared the people, for they perceived that they had told this parable against Him, so they left Him and went away. They're afraid of the people. They're afraid of, of the popular opinion about Jesus Christ, so they can't act against Jesus. Well, we have an idea. We can lower Jesus' view or lower the people's view of Jesus, and thus we can then get rid of Him and take Him off the scene. So if Jesus says, nope, you got to pay the tax, it's advantageous for them to get rid of Jesus. But on the other hand, if they say, if Jesus says, no, you don't have to pay that tax, that's not right, it is blasphemous. If he says that, he will be labeled as one causing sedition, treason, and possibly leading another uprising, another revolt against the Roman governments and the authorities. The Herodians would love this to death. They would report this to the authorities, and Jesus would be placed under arrest immediately as a treasonous, sedition-causing individual. Either way, Jesus loses, and the Sanhedrin can regain its control over the people. That's the trap. That's the plan. How does Jesus answer? Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Jesus, Jesus knows what's going on here, right? Jesus is not caught off guard by this. He knows that they're being hypocrites. He knows that their flattery is mere empty words. And, and each, of, each of the points of the, of the flattery is so significant for this dilemma that they put before him because if he answers one way or another, they said, oh, you don't show favoritism. Well, depending on how he answers, it's going to sound like he's showing favoritism to someone. He's going to be in trouble one way or the other. Jesus answers very shrewdly. First, He asks them, why do you put me to the test? Challenges their motives. He says, you, you're not asking this because you actually want an answer. You're asking this because you're testing me, and that's not right. But now He says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. 
what's on the denarius? Whose inscription? Whose image is there? Well, it's Caesar's, right? There is significance to that. On the denarius, there was, again, there's the image of Caesar on the coin. Just We have coins stamped today with, we got pictures of our presidents on there, right? Well, they had, Caesar was stamped on there. But on that coin, there was also an inscription. And on that inscription, in Jesus' day, it would have read this. Tiberius Caesar, the august son of the divine Augustus. The august son of the divine Augustus. Caesar claimed to be the son of a god and therefore a god himself. On the reverse side of that same coin, there was an image of a woman on a throne with words that read Pontifex Maximus or the high priest. We have a pagan woman, high priest, to a false god. It's highly offensive to the Jews, highly offensive to the Jewish people who did not believe that it was right for them to pay worship to anyone except Yahweh and Him alone. And that during that rebellion that I mentioned a few moments ago, they, they actually minted their own coins so that they could conduct their religious business, that they would come into the temple with nothing that was tainted by the Roman government. No, we're not going to use your idol money. Because in a sense, each and every single one of those coins was a miniature idol to the god Caesar Augustus, or Tiberius Caesar, son of Caesar Augustus. And yet, all of them seem to have that coin jingling in their pockets. Because when Jesus says, bring me a denarius, they didn't have to go hunting for it. They had one readily available, and so he, they bring it, and he looks at it. Okay, whose image inscription? All right, it's Caesar's. And so then Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And then, of course, their response, they're, they're amazed. They marvel at him. They, has, he has, the, Jesus' response, he has the questioners, they're marveling. And this is interesting that this is the only place throughout all of the Gospel of Mark where it says that the religious leaders or the people who are questioning Jesus marvel. We have lots of places where it says the people are amazed and the people marvel. But this is the only place where the leaders marvel. Clearly, He has thwarted their plans. It's a simple yes-no binary. He has evaded that somehow. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The question that must be asked now is, what do we make of Jesus' words and His teachings here? And I have to say that as I was approaching this text, I had certain assumptions about this text coming in. And as I started getting into it and started studying, those assumptions were challenged. And I ended up going a different direction than I initially thought I was going to go as I was digging into this text. My, my assumption was that Jesus was effectively answered, yeah, you have to pay your taxes. He just did so in a way that kind of softened the edge and made people think about, well, you know, all right, I guess that's something that I have to do. However, with closer examination, this ends up being a faulty conclusion to Jesus' words. 
Because the question, the question is not, must we pay our taxes? That's not the question that was asked of Jesus. The question was whether it was permissible to pay the tax, whether it was lawful to pay the tax. Was it considering the idolatrous nature of Caesar's rule and his coinage, was it right before God that we acknowledge that by paying the tax? That's what the question was. And then as we consider Jesus' words very carefully, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, while that might seem like an answer to the question on its face, it only actually kicks the question back a level because now the question might, must be, what belongs to Caesar? Which things are rightfully Caesar's? And there is a sense in which we could say, nothing, nothing is Caesar's. It all belongs to the Lord. Everything is God. Caesar doesn't own anything truly in a true, full sense. And yet there's still the implication of his words is that we would still render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So how do we think about this and how do we wrestle through this text? Is Jesus teaching here political theory about different spheres of authority and that we have different obligations in different spheres, the, the political sphere, the religious sphere? Is Jesus telling us that Caesar can levy any tax he wants and he can do it, use it for whatever purpose that he wants and we just have to bow down before him and take it? Well, again, my assumption coming in was that Jesus was simply teaching us, hey, everybody, you just got to pay your taxes. And while I do think there are implications for that question, I do not believe that's primarily what Jesus is driving at with this text. I don't believe that Jesus is primarily teaching us about political theory, about our, our role before the government. That, again, that doesn't mean there is an application about paying your taxes. So before you go out and say, hey, Pastor Ken says you don't have to pay your taxes. Ah, 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 ah. Sit tight, just hang on for a minute. Not done yet. I do think there is appropriate application about you and your taxes. But what I'm looking to communicate is that this was not Jesus' primary point. And sadly, I think his point gets missed so often as we try to use this text to, to wrestle through political theory. And that's, those are good and important questions to think about. What's the Christian's relationship to the government? How should we think about our responsibility and the taxes that are levied against us? What, how should we think about those things? Those are important questions. But it was not at the heart of what Jesus is trying to provoke in the hearts of his hearers. So what is his point? What is Jesus really getting at? Well, let's consider a few things. Just want to remind us about the context of the denarius. Again, idolatrous, blasphemous, and yet Jesus, when asked for the coin, they produced it on the spot. Clearly, they were already comfortable on some level using that money. And remember where all of this is taking place. They're still in the temple complex. They are still in God's house, and yet they're using these idolatrous coins for their commerce, even within the temple complex. There were other coins that were available 
that they could have used in their commerce. They, they did not only have to use this coin, and yet it's what they were using. So when Jesus asked for this coin and they produced it so quickly, that, that highlights their hypocrisy right off the bat. And again, it says Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, says, oh, you object to this coin, do you? Well, let me see one. Oh, you've got one. Oh, you're using it for temple purposes. Can you really be so torn if you're already using it? Not only are you using it, but these things, again, it's in the temple complex. One commentator noted, again, that I mentioned the concept of the rebellion that happened and how they didn't use that coin during that rebellion because it was a sign that, that that's a foreign government, that's idolatrous, we don't want that in the temple. Well, all of those convictions seem to have gone away at this point. Clearly, they weren't at that level of objection to the tax. And so, I, I love how this commentator, his name is David Garland, he put it in his commentary. He says this, quote, They already pay a kind of tribute to Caesar by possessing his coin. Therefore, they owe Caesar the tribute he demands from taxes. In effect, Jesus says, let Caesar have his idols. I love that from David Garland. Caesar has created, he's created hundreds of thousands of idols to himself, these coins that are in circulation around his empire. If he wants it back, let him have it. He can have his idols. But here's the real issue right here. Render to God the things that are God. So much time is spent answering the question whether or not we pay taxes to Caesar, debating whether or not these things really belong to Caesar. It misses what Jesus is really getting at here. Jesus doesn't leave it at, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He doesn't stop there. Render to God the things that are God's. Caesar's image is on those coins. If he wants it, let him have it. You can have your idols. But guess whose image is on your very soul? God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Genesis chapter 1. Jesus is challenging them. You're so worried about, about all these earthly obligations. You're so worried about whether or not it's, it's lawful, whether or not God would approve of whether or not you would give your taxes to Caesar or not, but you're completely missing the point. You're, you're, you've forgotten, you've neglected everything about how you yourself are obligated to the Lord. These religious leaders, they've been robbing God at every possible turn. They've turned the temple complex into a den of robbers where they're using that same coinage that they're objecting to and they're using it to carry out temple commerce, the trading and selling of animals and such. In the parable immediately before this, they have been robbing God of the fruit of the vineyard and God is going to hold them accountable for that. In the passages that follow, they rob the poor and the destitute and for what? For their own personal enrichment and gain. Question, 
that these leaders must be asking is not whether it's permissible for them to pay taxes. Who gives a rip about that when your own souls are being held from the Lord? And this is the question that we have to wrestle with in our own hearts. The questions about political theory, and there is so much conversation these days about political theory and our relationship to the government. Should we have Christian nationalism? Should we do these other things? Who should we vote for? All of these things. All the while, we have idols within our hearts. And our hearts are not fully, wholly devoted unto the Lord. The questions about political theory and our Christians' obligation to the government, those are important questions. I'm not dismissing that. I'm not trying to downplay that. Those are important questions that we need to wrestle with, we need to think about, we need to pray about these things, we need to look into the Scriptures to see what our obligations are. And there are texts of Scripture that talk about those things and, and answer those questions. But today, here with this text. Jesus is not trying to make a point about political theory. Are you rendering to God the things that are God's? This begins, of course, with a life of faith in Jesus Christ. We're in this story of Christ on His pathway to the cross. We're on this this journey to Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem. He's, he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be crucified on that cross. And the gospel message is that we repent and we trust in Jesus Christ. That's where everything begins. When we render to God the things that are God's, we owe our very lives to Him. We owe our souls to Him. We would come before Him in submission to the gospel of Christ. question that flows from that is, do our obligations extend beyond that? And so I want to challenge us today. Is there, are there areas of life that you have withheld from the Lord? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. There are patterns of sin within our lives that, that we have withheld, that we've held on to. He says, Lord, I don't want to give that up yet. Render yourselves to God. Have you withheld a generosity to God and to others? Render yourselves to God. Do you make time with the Lord, a, a daily priority in prayer and scripture reading? Render yourselves to God. Do you attempt to justify things that God has said is not right because, well, I can serve God better if I you know, skirt the rules in this way or if I do this other thing over here? Or, well, hey, you know what? I'm not as bad as what others do. Hey, I'll address that later on when I'm in a better place. No, render yourselves to God. You are not your own. 
glorify God in your body. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, a very practical way of how we can live this and how we can think about this. He, he prefaces it with this concept of how we've died with Christ and so we are raised up with Him, Romans chapter 6. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died to sin once for all, but the life that He lives, He lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the key right here. Present yourself to God. God, today my hands are yours, my, my life is yours, my assets are yours, Lord, my house is yours, my family, they're yours, my wallet is yours, my vehicle is yours. Use all of these for your righteousness today. Work these things within my life. If you make that daily conscious presentation before the Lord, I guarantee there will be a change in your life. You will see patterns of sin broken by consciously offering yourself up to the Lord. Lord, today, this is yours. Rule lawyers are always asking questions about the rules so that they can try to find ways around them. Jesus demands a different mindset. It's not about me. It's not about what I want. It's about honoring the Lord. It's about submitting myself to the Lord and everything that He wants from me and for me in my life. Dear Heavenly Father, I do pray and ask, Lord, that you would help me be one who practices what I preach. May I be one who renders myself unto you. Lord, may I be one who presents myself before you. May not, I not be one who robs you of that which is due. Lord, you deserve everything, all the honor, the praise, the glory, all of it. My life, my finances, my home, my vehicles, my business, my family, my time. Lord, I do pray that you would help me to think of everything that I have in service to you. That I would be a good steward of that which you've entrusted to me. And I pray that that would be true for every single person hearing my voice today. 
when it begins with the heart of faith and extends through all of life. Work this within us, I pray. I ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.